This year our theme is living the abundant life. Not everyone is on the top level of abundant living that God wants us to be on. Uh, Some are moving in that direction this year, I believe, and we're going to keep working on it until we uh, get a few more folks living an abundant life because that's what Jesus wants us to live. Jesus said specifically, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Yes, he came that we might have eternal life. We understand that part of it. But more abundantly indicates a richness of life here on earth, an overflowing, abundant, full life. We understand that if a farmer wants to raise an abundant harvest, uh, we know how he has to go about that. He's got to clear the field first, get all the weeds and bugs and bad things out of it, then plant the right things, fertilize it properly, and then God can give him an abundant harvest. Our plan to get the abundant life is exactly the same thing. Uh, If we want an abundant life, we start by clearing the field. And that's what we've been working on for the past few weeks. Have another week or so to go on that. Uh, We're clearing things out of our field, out of our heart, out of our life, so that we can plant the right things in there and then reap the abundant life that God's promised us. Uh, We're working on not bugs and weeds, but other things that are noxious problems, sin and guilt and worry and other problems we've been talking about. Last week we talked specifically about unforgiveness. That's a sin that wrecks our relationship with God. It poisons our own soul, the sin of unforgiveness. Before that we talked about pride. Uh, We discovered that pride's a sin also. It's hated by God. It's in the list of things that he specifically says, I hate this. I hate pride in someone. I hate a haughty look, a proud eye. Uh, We also found out that it's a gateway to all other sins almost. Uh, With pride, we're open to so many other sins that are so dangerous for us. And pride keeps us from having an abundant life. We also talked about worry. Of course, that's a direct disobedience of God's command not to worry. Jesus said, don't worry. So it's a sin if we do worry. But uh, beyond that, it's a lack of faith. It it has no place in a Christian's life to worry. And we talked about what worry means. Worry takes over our field. It kills out any chance of an abundant life growing up there. And, of course, we started with sin. Uh, We all have sin in our lives. We're not saying we've got to be sin-free. That's impossible. If we say that, we're lying. But we're talking about willful, unrepented of, rebellious sin. Some of us have one thing that we hold on to. We refuse to get out of our life. We've got to get it out. Before we can have the abundant life, we've got to pull that sin out. We've got to hold it up, confess it, admit what it is, and then hack it to pieces. Or it'll just keep coming back. It'll keep impoverishing us. It'll keep harassing us just like the Amalekites did to the Israelites. So the old prophet finally hacked King Agag to pieces. He got rid of that problem. And that's what we need to do with sin in our life. Now those are four life-destroying problems that we've been talking about. We've got to get those out of our lives before we can have an abundant life. Now today, let's look at our fifth life-stealing problem, uh, judgmentalism. Now, 
Remember, I've said about every lesson we've had so far, this is not for everyone. This is not for everybody in here, and judgmentalism is another one that is not for everyone. None of our lessons have been addressed to everyone, but they are for someone. And in an audience this large, I know there is somebody, at least one, who has this problem of judgmentalism. If you're not sure if it's you or not, I ask you to listen carefully for a while at least uh, to see if perhaps this problem uh, is something that exists in your life. You may be the one that the Holy Spirit is addressing today. The, the word comes to those who need to hear it. If it applies to you, then let's work on getting judgmentalism out of your life. If I went out on the street and asked people if they knew a Bible verse... I would probably get a few different Bible verses, but I'd probably get just a few. A lot of people know John 3.16, or at least they know those numbers. They may not know what the verse says, but everybody knows John 3.16 because they've seen it at a football game. But uh, if you, I ask somebody, what's a, what's a verse that you can quote, or a part of one, or something you know about a Bible verse, I'm convinced that the grand prize winner would be Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Do not judge. Uh, I believe that would win. Uh, it might not win if I just asked people, give me a verse. But if I kept track of how many people quote a verse in their daily life, I know this one would win. Because this is the world's favorite verse. Th this is absolutely the favorite verse in the world. People like this one. You hear it all the time. You hear, hear lots of different people saying, do not judge. I read an interesting thing the other day. It was a meeting of a group of seminary, seminary professors, and they were talking about problems these days. And one guy said, you know, the biggest problem is, is this attitude that we can't judge anything. He said, I can't even get a good argument going in class anymore. That used to be how I got students to learn, is I'd get somebody to take one position and then let other people argue against it, and they thought about it, and they, they learned that way. He said, now when we start discussing something, as soon as one person takes a stand, somebody else or everybody else says, well, that's judgmental. You can't judge like that. And he said, it kills it. You're done. You can't talk anymore. This is the spirit of this age is we can't judge anything. A teenager is told by her parents that, no, you cannot date that boy. He's wrong for you. He's not good for your spiritual growth. You cannot date him. And what's the response? She storms from the room, slams the door behind her, and says, judge ye not that you be not judged. We know that verse. People use it all the time. Some national news story about some misbehavior somewhere, whether it's in the White House or somewhere else, comes up. And if somebody takes a position on it, especially a Christian leader, and says, well, that's wrong, what happens? All the talking heads jump all over it. Well, you can't be judgmental. How are you able to judge somebody else? How are you going to impose your morality on someone else? So this is the spirit of this age. Judge not. In fact, I got to thinking, this is really the first lesson where we have to spend any time talking about or deciding, should we even talk about it? 
The others, we know you got to talk about that. Everybody knows sin is a bad thing. Everybody knows, knows worry is wrong. Everybody knows pride is bad for you. Unforgiveness will eat you up. We understand all that. But judging, is that wrong or not? Well, that's a good question. Should we judge others? And it's kind of an interesting dilemma because if you read some verses, the answer is no. If you read some verses, the answer is no. You have to check no on that one because Matthew 7, 1 says, do not judge. James 4, verse 11 and 12 says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, you read those two and you check the no box. Well, no, we're not supposed to judge anybody because God said not to. The problem is if you read some other verses, the answer is yes. John chapter 7 and verse 24 says we are to make right judgments. Well, if you're supposed to make right judgments, you got to judge. You got to decide something. Luke chapter 12 and verse 57 says judge for yourselves what is right. Well, we've got to judge something if we're going to figure out what is right. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, very interesting, verse 12 and 13, Paul said, aren't you supposed to judge those inside the church he's talking about? Aren't you supposed to judge those inside the church? And listen to this. He says, then you expel the wicked brother from your number. That takes some judging, folks. To actually decide that somebody is doing something wrong enough that they have to be expelled from the body, that requires judging. And Paul said, we're supposed to do that. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15 says, beware of false teachers. Well, if you're going to beware of false teachers, what have you got to understand? There's good teaching and bad teaching. There's right teaching and wrong teaching. There's true doctrine and false doctrine. And you've got to judge that. If we operate just by feelings that, well, okay, feels all right to me, but I can't really be judgmental. No way we can beware of false teachers. One way to think about this judging thing, maybe there's lots of ways to explain it, but one way might be to say, we're really not judging. We're just agreeing with the word of God. Yeah. If a a brother is doing something immoral and so wicked that he can't be a part of the body anymore, we're not really judging him. Uh, We look in the Word of God and it says this behavior is wrong, and we agree with that. We tell him, we agree with this verse. What you're doing is wrong. In that sense, the Bible is the one judging. God's words are the one is what is judging. We're just agreeing with it. That's one way to think about it. But No or yes, can we judge or not? It's really pretty easy to figure out if we read the rest of the story. The problem with most people is they stop with those first three words. Do not judge, and they quit. Well, if you go on to the B part of the verse, it says a few other things. He starts out in chapter uh, 7 and verse 1, says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others... You will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then he gives a little illustration. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? 
You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice at the end of that, he said we can take the speck out of our brother's eye. So we can recognize things. There's a little judging involved in there. But what Paul, uh, Jesus was talking about is the, the spirit of his age, what religion had turned into was this critical thing, this huge body of criticism. And that's what the leaders specialized in. That's what the Pharisees and the other leaders specialized in is pointing out all the things that everybody else was doing wrong. So he's trying to talk to them about that. He's trying to tell them that's not how you're supposed to operate. For instance, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus was in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Went to dinner at a Pharisee's house. Remember the woman came in, a sinful woman. Everybody knew her reputation. She came in and began to anoint Jesus' feet. Remember what the Pharisee said? Oh, Simon said, well, he was really a prophet. If he was really a prophet, he'd know that this woman is a sinner. See, the Pharisees had it all divided up. (laughs) We're the righteous, we're the religious, and they are sinners, they are sinners, he's a sinner, she's a sinner. They could spot it, they knew, they had all the criteria figured out, and they classified people as sinners. Well, Jesus tells them this story, he knew how much sin they had in their own life. Excuse me, and he tells them, you better not be judging that way. And the story he tells them is about somebody having a plank, a board coming out of their own eye, trying to see specks in someone else's. We'll talk about that more in just a moment, but that's a funny picture. I imagine people in the crowd laughed when Jesus issued this ruling. The humorous thing. So if we read the rest of the story, what do we learn about judging? Well, the Bible clearly says we are to judge right from wrong. The Bible clearly says we are to judge right from wrong. Bible says some things are wrong. We're supposed to agree with that. We're supposed to recognize it. We're supposed to say so even. Now the Bible does tell us to do that gently. It tells us to do it with love. It tells us spiritual people ought to do it. But it tells us if there's sin among us, if somebody is misbehaving, is doing the wrong thing, then we are supposed to go to them, the spiritual among us, and in gentleness and love, correct them. Tell them they're doing something wrong. We're supposed to judge doctrine, what's right, what's wrong. There's a lot of things we're supposed to judge right from wrong. But the do not judge part of that command refers to judging in a judgmental or a fault-finding way. Let's put it that way. Judgmental or fault-finding. And there are lots of other words we could use for this, but maybe that helps. Harsh judgmentalism may help you more. But there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. There's a difference between recognizing right and wrong and fault-finding and being critical. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about. Yes, discern right from wrong, but do not be judgmental or fault-finding or critical. One modern translation puts it this way. Don't pick on people. Don't jump on their faults. 
Don't criticize their faults unless, of course, you want the same treatment. A little more modern translation that may help us understand what Jesus was saying. Uh, That verse says, do not judge, isn't telling us to cease being men, being humans. God gave us a brain, and we're supposed to be able to discern right from wrong. Doesn't mean cease doing that, cease being humans, but it does tell us not to try to become God. We can still be men, we can still be human, but we aren't God. And that's what this verse is about. You don't take the, the position of judging and understanding everything about somebody's problems, unless you want the same treatment. Let's think of it this way. I entitled the sermon, Who Put You on the Jury? Let's think about a jury just a moment. Let's assume you're charged with a crime. We won't even talk about whether you're innocent or not. Let's just assume you're charged with a crime. And you have got to go to trial before a jury of your peers. Well, obviously they're not your peers. They're people that come from the jury pool. They may live in the same county, but they're not really your peers. So my question is, what kind of people would you like on the jury? What kind of people would you like? Would you just take random, just pick the first 12 that walk in the door? Or would you like some input in that? Would you like to find out a little bit about them before you decide if they can be on the jury or not? Well, obviously you'd like to have some input, wouldn't you? And lawyers get to have that input. They get to ask questions of the jury and all that before they put them on the jury. Well, let's assume you're on trial for something. How would you like your jury to be described? Suppose you went in and your lawyer said, well, I just let the other guy pick them. And I've kind of listened to what they've had to say, and I, I think what we've got here is a group that's pretty harsh, and some of them are really hypercritical. Uh, they're going to jump to some unfounded, unjust, uncharitable decisions. In fact, a couple of them are malicious. They're slanderous. And after looking at them, I think if you even look guilty... They're, they're going to jump to a hasty assumption that you are guilty. That's the 12 that are going to judge you. Well, how comfortable do you feel with that? See, so, so you don't want that, do you? You don't want an uncharitable person trying to decide whether you're guilty or not. You don't want somebody that's hypercritical. Jesus is saying, if you don't want that kind of judgment yourself... If you don't want that kind of jury deciding about your life, then you don't act like that when you're judging other people. See, that's the kind of folks that Jesus is warning us not to be. If you're like that, if you're harsh and hypercritical and uncharitable and malicious and unjust and all of those things, my question for you is who put you on the jury? you ever run into somebody like that i think it's okay to ask them who put you on the jury somebody's coming down on you hard harsh and critical and just jumping all over whatever you do ask them who put you on the jury that's what matthew 7 is about you see jesus was a carpenter so when he told that story i think he had a specific picture in mind 
In fact, the word he uses for plank or uh, beam uh, is a large piece of wood. I thought about bringing a two-before up here to illustrate, but I think it was bigger than a two-before. The word actually was for a a rafter or a floor joist or something like that, a, a big piece of wood. And Jesus no doubt remembered when he was in the carpenter shop that sometimes he'd get sawdust in his eye. Anybody ever get a speck of dust in their eye? Okay, when that happens, you usually need somebody to help you. You know, sometimes you can get it out yourself, but usually you can't because you can't see too good. You're crying. So you go get some help. When Cindy comes in and says, I got some dust in my eye, I need you to help me, what do I do? First, I go get my glasses. Got to get my glasses and get them on so I can see up close. And then I'll move her somewhere where there's good light. Okay? And I'll get her in the good light where I can look just right. And I'll look around in there and I can see if I can spot a speck. Okay? Well, what Jesus tells a story about is the guy that comes to help isn't in good light with glasses on all that. What he's got is this four before coming out of his eye. And so when he gets down to look, every time he looks, the person's got a duck. Yeah, I mean, the more you think about this, the sillier it gets. It's a foolish picture, and that's what Jesus wanted us to think about. How foolish is this with problems in your own life, with things that you know you're doing wrong, that you're jumping all over other people, that you're being harsh and judgmental and finding fault with everybody else. It seems foolish, the little story he tells, but a lot of people are self-appointed spec inspectors. They just think that's their job. You go around looking for specks in everybody else's eye, no matter how big the beam is coming out of their own eye. Why would make anybody do that? (laughs) Why would anybody think they're a spec inspector? Well, at least four reasons, and let me... Name a few of them. The first thing is envy. Some people are spec inspectors because of envy. They see someone, they focus on someone who they're envious of or they're jealous of or they resent in some way. And they think if I can bring them down, if I can show that they're not so special, well, that'll fix them. So envy drives some people to uh, to look for fault in specific people. Another characteristic is hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 5, in the middle of Jesus' story, he even used that word. He says, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Well, how's that? How's this hypocrisy? Well, let me explain how it's hypocrisy. A speck inspector will jump all over things in some people. And they'll let it go in other people. People that they're close to or people that they like particularly or people they're, uh, they're, who's their favorite or related to, they'll let this stuff go. But they see it in somebody else. They see it in somebody that they aren't so close to or that they don't like so well or that they want to bring down somehow. And they'll jump all over it and say, look at that, that's wrong. Well, that defines a hypocrite. A hypocrite pretends that this sin and this behavior is so bad, it's just horrible, but they really don't feel that way. They really don't believe it's so bad because they let it go in people that they like. 
in another circumstance, they just ignore it. That's hypocrisy. So that's why Jesus called them hypocrites. Because they were doing some of the same things in their own life or worse and jumping on other folks that they could see it in their life. You hypocrite. Many spec inspectors have a desire to cover their own sin. Or at least divert attention away from it maybe. John chapter 12, the story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet. Remember who complained? Judas. What was Judas' complaint? That's wasteful. You're wasting money. We could have spent that on the poor. What was Judas doing? He was stealing money out of the treasury. He was in charge of the bag of money. And he was stealing from it that they could have given to the poor and all that. So as soon as he saw somebody wasting something, he said, oh, look at that. Well, nobody would ever suspect him of wasting money, would they? Or stealing, well, he's so concerned about money. Sometimes spec inspectors do that to cover their own sin. I fired an employee one time who was stealing from the stock room. He was stealing things. The inventory accuracy was off. Things were kept showing up wrong, and I was trying to figure out what was happening. So I was paying pretty good attention to it and checking and tracing and trailing things that were wrong. And this guy would come up to me and show me other people's errors. He'd say, look at this. They received that wrong. They got the count wrong on that. Look at this. They put this in the wrong bin here. That's why that one's off. They counted this one wrong when they took inventory. He'd show me all those things. He was trying to keep me off the trail. Because if I got on the trail, the trail was going to lead right to him because he was the one stealing things. Okay? We do that. Spec inspectors do that. They think if they can direct your attention over here somewhere and get you to look at all these problems or these little things in somebody else's life, you won't notice the mess in their life. Spec inspectors also are making an effort to justify their own behavior. If you can point out all the other things that people are doing wrong, then you can say, I'm not so bad. If you can draw enough attention to other people and see how bad they are, then you don't look so bad. if, If my shoes aren't shined this morning, if they're all scuffed up and muddy and a mess... One way I can deal with that is stand back there at the door, and as you pass by, I can just look at your shoes. And I can find some that are a mess. And if I find enough that aren't shined going past, I can say, this isn't so bad. Look at all those other folks that don't have shined shoes. We try to justify our own behavior sometimes. Remember what the Pharisee said when he went in to pray? Thank God. Thank you, God. That I am not like those people. If he could point out all the bad ones, then he looked pretty good. Well, spec inspectors do that. They try to justify their own behavior. All right, so those are some reasons why. Now, why shouldn't we be spec inspectors? It's enough just that Jesus said don't. You know, Jesus said don't be judgmental, so we shouldn't be. But... It might help us to understand why it's so wrong. This is a bad problem, and it's really wrong. Let me give you three reasons quickly. Number one, we never know all of the facts 
or all of the circumstances. We don't know that. We look at something, I'm, and I'm talking about sin now, folks. I'm not talking about just mess-ups. I'm talking about somebody that's really sinning. We don't know their background. We don't know what caused them to come to this point in life. F.B. Meyer said one time that when we judge our brother, there are three things that we don't know. He said, number one, we do not know how hard he tried not to sin. All we see is he sinned. We don't know how hard he tried not to sin. Number two, we don't know the powers or the forces that assailed him. I'm not excusing the sin. I'm just saying we don't know that. And number three, he said, we don't know what we would have done in the same circumstances. We don't know everything. Now, yes, if we see sin in somebody's life and we gently, lovingly, and spiritually go to them about it, that's fine. But we're talking about this judgmentalism, seeing things that are wrong and jumping all over it. If we knew, what I'm trying to tell you, if we knew what some folks had been through, we'd wonder how they do as well as they do. A man was riding on a bus one day. He was greatly disturbed by a young boy who was running up and down the aisle, laughing at the top of his lungs, screaming, just making a mess of things. The boy's dad was just sitting there, almost like he was asleep. He just didn't seem to notice even what his son was doing. And the man watched for a while, and the more he watched, the matter he got. That anybody could be that rude and that inconsiderate. So he began to look closer. He began to study the man, the father. And he noticed, first of all, that the man's hair was uncombed. It was a mess. So he concluded, well, he's probably homeless. But his clothes were kind of wrinkled too and his hair was messed up. He looked a little bit closer and the man's eyes were very bloodshot. Uh, he's probably an alcoholic, too. So he, didn't, he doesn't even deserve to have custody of a child. He doesn't know how to raise a child. And the more he thought about it, the madder he got. And finally, he could take no more of it. So he got up, and he went over, and he confronted the dad. He was going to demand that he do something about this boy. He went over, and he spoke to the dad, and the dad didn't even move. So he spoke a little louder and finally reached out and touched him. And the dad seemed to kind of come out of a trance. And he listened to the man tell him about his son and the behavior and all of that. And then he apologized to the man. He told him he had been at the hospital for 36 hours. That the boy's mom, his wife, had just died this morning after struggling all night. And he was sitting there trying to decide how to break the news to the boy. You see, a, a jury at least gets to hear both sides of the story. A jury gets to hear the cross-examination, gets to hear all sides. If we're judgmental, we just see one small part, one side of the story. We see one thing and think we're wise enough to act like God. We don't know enough to be on the jury, folks. Number two, the reason it's so wrong is because we cannot be impartial. We have too many conflicting interests. 
We've got too many family and friends with same problems. We've got too many loved ones that we don't criticize. We've got too many prejudices and dislikes that cause us to be impartial, not be impartial. We just can't be impartial. It's not in us as humans to be that way. Most of us aren't this bad, but I read about one woman that had a son and a daughter. Both of them got married. And when she would describe her children and their families to other people, here's how she'd do it. She said, my daughter got such a wonderful husband. He lets her sleep late. He insists on her going to the beauty parlor all the time. He won't even let her cook. He takes her out to dinner all the time. She got such a great husband. And then she'd say, but I'm not so happy for my son. My son married this girl who's lazy. She sleeps late every morning. She spends all her time on her hair and makeup. She won't cook. She makes him take her out to dinner all the time. We just can't be impartial. We're just not built that way. When I was young at Northside, a long time ago, I was always amazed by one dear sister. I was amazed by her because she was kind of a genetic malfunction. She was part owl. She really was. Uh, She sat kind of down toward the front. And if any baby cried for more than about three seconds, this dear sister would swivel her head around wherever the sound was coming from (laughs) and give that poor mother the stare. Now, I said she was part owl. I don't think it would go 360 degrees, (laughs) but it was close. She could do 180 easy. Yeah, she, she could get any part of the auditorium. Okay, and she would fix them with that stare for a while. Well, then one of her kids had a baby. And when that baby cried, and it did cry fairly regularly, when it did, she would respond by looking over that way and smiling. And just beaming from ear to ear. You see, we're not impartial enough to be on the jury. We don't know enough to be on the jury. We're not impartial enough to be on the jury. Number three, it's not our job to be on the jury. You can read the job description of everybody in this room. You've all got a job description, whether you know it or not. It's in the book here. You can read your job description and not one time will you find the words jury member or judge. God says, I will handle that one. He says, I am the judge. I will do it. I will do it right. I will do it perfectly. But it's not your job. Becky even tells us why. He says, you can't see inside. Over in 1 Samuel at David's house, remember that? prophet and everybody else was looking on the outside and deciding who ought to be king. And God said, no, it's little boy David. I got it right because I can look on the inside. You got it wrong because you can't see on the inside. So it's not our job. We don't know enough to be on the jury. We aren't impartial enough to be on the jury. We're not assigned the job of being on the jury. So if you try to act like you're on the jury, it's fair for me to ask you, Who put you on the jury? You aren't on there. If you've decided by now that this is one of your problems, this is what's keeping you from the abundant life in part, then you need to remedy it. 
We've tried to be very practical at the end of every lesson, some ways to remedy things. Let's work on this one, four ways to remedy this problem. The simple answer is to practice love. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. You know that's the truth. Somebody you love, you'll let things go. You'll excuse it. You'll find reasons that that's okay. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. One modern translation says, love is slow to expose. Always protects somebody. Doesn't want to tell everybody what they're doing wrong immediately. Always trusts. They translate that. They're always eager to believe the best. So if you just practice love, you'll be on the road to dealing with this problem. Number two, it'll help to remember the golden rule. The golden rule, do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. It works in reverse. You know, if you want people to be nice to you and do good to you, you do good to them. Matthew 7 says, if you want people to judge you harshly, be critical and fault-finding and judgmental, then that's how you treat them. It works in reverse. It boomerangs right back. Just substitute it in there. Read the golden rule that way. How you want others to think about you and judge you, you judge them that way. Helps to think about the golden rule. Number three, it'll be a great help to try to always look for the good in people. God's good at that. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. Paul was a blasphemer. Paul did all sorts of things wrong. And God looked at him and said, I think I see the makings of a great missionary. I mean, think about how hard that would be to do. We couldn't do that. We couldn't get past all the external things. God could. He saw the good in people. I read one time about the comedian Red Skelton, who was a, seemed to be a very good man. He said that whenever somebody irritated him, started to get on his nerves, he'd ask his wife to make some iced tea, and they'd go sit down at the table, and they'd drink iced tea until they'd thought of five things they liked about that person. And then that took care of the problem. They didn't irritate him anymore. Well, you can try that. Try to look for the good in people. And finally, number four, when a critical, judgmental spirit arises in your spirit, always stop to consider the consequences. So many consequences to being judgmental. It, it makes us blind to our own faults. When we're so busy finding everybody else's, we don't have time to think about our own. It destroys friends. You talk about killing the abundant life. If you want to not have any friends, here's a way to do it. Just be harsh and critical and judgmental. Even if you're not about them, if you just tell them about other people all the time, you can start marking them off one by one. People don't want to be around somebody like that. It kills the abundant life. An abundant life can't grow up in a field that's got judgmental, fault-finding, harsh criticism in it. Just can't do it. You'll be miserable. And, of course, the biggest consequence is what Jesus said right here in Matthew 7, 1. You will be judged exactly the same way. I mean, you think about that very long, that'll straighten you up. Think about appearing before the judgment seat and trying to plead your case if he's going to judge you exactly like you judged other people. It'll be a hard day for some folks. Jesus really wants you to live an abundant life. It's what he came for. 
He said, I have come that they might have an abundant life. He came to forgive you. He didn't come to be harsh and critical and judgmental. He understands your heart. He forgives you with love. Now, to live an abundant life, to do so, you've got to do what we've said every week. You've got to hear what we're talking about, and then you've got to put it into practice. That was Jesus' own plan. He said, you're wise if you hear what I'm telling you, and then put it into practice. If you've heard the problems that are associated with being judgmental and fault-finding and critical this morning, now you've got to do something about it. You've got to follow the remedy plan that we had there and pray and do the other things we've talked about in past weeks. You've got to get this out of your life. You've got to hack it to pieces. Are you able to say this morning that you're living an abundant life? I mean, we've been at this for a few weeks now. You should have been thinking about abundant life. Are you able to say, yes, I am living the top level. I'm living the kind of abundant life Jesus wants me to. Well, if you have a critical, fault-finding spirit, if you're a speck inspector looking for specks in other people's eyes, I guarantee you, you're not on the top level. There's no way to be up here if you've got that in your life. You've got to let go of that behavior. With the help of the Holy Spirit, he'll help you get it out of your life. But you've got to get it out before you have any hope of moving up to the rich, overflowing, full, abundant life that he came that you might have. If you need to respond in any way this morning, we're going to issue the Lord's invitation. If you need to put Christ on in baptism or ask for the prayers of this family or confess anything wrong in your life, we're going to invite you to come. Let's stand and sing.